Welcome to The Lead from New Lines Magazine. I'm Amy Ferris-Rotman, and this is a podcast where we delve into the biggest ideas, events, and personalities from around the world. We are now in the second year of Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, a war that has unleashed horrific human suffering and devastation. Memory politics, that is, the official position of countries regarding historical events and the ensuing conflicts those create, have taken center stage in the war, where Moscow has consistently justified its invasion with its version of Ukraine's history, one that makes it intertwined with Russia's. The politics of memory are everywhere and are especially relevant now in Eastern Europe, as the war raises questions about how historical memory is imprinted on identity, from the Holocaust to the breakup of the Soviet Union in the early 1990s. With me today is Linda Kinsler, an academic and a journalist who writes for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Atlantic. She currently edits the new online magazine, The Dial, and she is the author of Come to This Court and Cry, How the Holocaust Ends. Linda, welcome to the podcast. I am so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Linda, let's begin with your book. I must say, I mean, it's a serious triumph. I read it very quickly, which uh, which I which I'm which I usually don't do. I enjoyed it immensely, although perhaps the word enjoy is is the wrong word as it's a deeply <laughs> affecting book. I mean, it, yeah, it deals with the Holocaust by bullets, the gunning down of hundreds of thousands of Jews in the forests of Latvia. And your book is indeed your tale. It's incredibly unique. You have both victims and perpetrators of the Holocaust in your own family. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Um, and I completely agree with you that enjoy is not quite the right word, although I find myself using it in presenting the book to others um, because it was, you know, very um, a kind of complex undertaking for precisely that reason. Um, I grew up mostly with my, you know, mother's family. Uh, both of my parents were born in Riga, Latvia, um, during the Soviet Union, and but they came from very different backgrounds. Uh, my mother's family was entirely from Ukraine, from Kiev and Kharkov. They were both um, from, you know, old Jewish families there, and had been moved to Riga um, to kind of bring the Soviet presence and cement. Um, the prominence of the Russian language in the Baltic states after World War II. Um, and my father's family were Latvians and had, you know, been in the country through its sequential occupations, um, first the Soviets and then the Germans and then the Soviets again, of course. And so, you know, had seen what was an independent country, uh, for almost 20 years at the start of the 20th century, they had seen it, you know, become occupied by these sequential powers. And so they came from very different backgrounds. And that history basically has informed my own approach to this story. My mother's family, you know, many of them were evacuated from Soviet Ukraine as the Germans approached, but some of them did not make it out. And so indeed, some of our family members were killed at Babinyar, which is the, you know, as many readers or listeners will know, it's the largest um, mass killing site in Eastern Europe. Um, but my, and my father's family, his father was a member of a killing squad, which is called known as the RS Commando, 
which was one of the most br brutal killing units of the Holocaust in the Baltic states, um, which is something that we didn't know about his father for a very long time. Um, and indeed, you know, my mother didn't know the full story as they were kind of forming their life together. And so we've all been on this process of discovery for quite some time. You mentioned the, these details in the book about your father, um, which intrigued me that he actually withheld certain photos um, of his father, who was involved with the Nazis in World War II. So does that mean that your own family has been working through these issues with you writing this book as well? I mean, you did just touch on that, but is that is that what happened? I mean, has there been a, a, a deep dive on their part as well, looking inward, perhaps? Yeah, I mean, I would say that we're all kind of... Um, I couldn't have done it, of course, without being in consultation with my family, um, in part because it is very much their story, you know, the story of what it was like to come of age um, during the Cold War in the Soviet Union, and also what it was like to experience its downfall. And that meant, you know, for both of my parents, um, looking through the archives um, and the documents that only came to light after 1991, um, when the Soviets left Riga, they left behind you know, KGB files, many documents about who was an informant, who was an agent, and the like. And so, and the kind of mysteries that those presented, you know, why were these files left behind and not others? What are we to make of them? Um, what does it mean that someone is registered in the KGB system? What does it mean that their name is on file? All of these things are definitely um questions that I think uh, we have been kind of working through together and, um, you know, exposing a very difficult and painful history. But I think, you know, what I found is that it, because it is so belated, because, you know, many of the efforts to actually understand what these files contained have only really picked up over the last 10 years, um, it's kind of reactivating this history in the region in a powerful way, I think. When you were looking at these files and, and doing your research, I mean, w were you hoping that your research or what you would find would exonerate your grandfather? It was actually kind of the opposite. I was, you know, I was absolutely not interested in pardoning him. I was pretty grounded in the fact that, you know, as long as he was affiliated with and confirmed to be a part of this commando, then that proves his complicity um, beyond a reasonable doubt. And... Um, I found that not only was my grandfather kind of a known figure in Latvia because of his complicity, not only with the Germans, but then later after the war with the Soviets, he um, turned out to have been registered as some kind of KGB agent um, after the war. But we don't know, of course, when he began working with them. Um, and he disappeared very abruptly in 1949 in the, you know, what used to be a closed Soviet nuclear city, the site of the Soviet Union's uranium mines, Silame, uh, on the northern Estonian coast, which is a very interesting place, um, and the site of a lot of spycraft. Um, and then after that, the tale, the kind of the story runs cold on him. And so he was picked up and reactivated as this kind of figure of betrayal. Um, and as I was starting to discover this story, I 
I was looking around and reading everything I could about the RS Commando. And I found the story of this man named Herbert Sukers, who I figured must have known my grandfather if they were in the same group. And indeed, the archives confirm that, you know, their names are listed next to each other, that my grandfather signed a document that would give Zuckers a gun. Um, and this man, he was very, very well known in Latvia in the interwar period. He was called the Latvian Lindbergh. He was a pioneering aviator um, who, you know, fancied himself a journalist. Um, and I read that he was assassinated by Mossad in 1965 in a kind of uh, operation that to this day remain, remains somewhat occluded. Right, and a large part of the book um, focuses on, on a posthumous trial into Sukkurs, um, which, which you report on in the book with enormous attention to detail. I must say, at times, I felt like I was reading a thriller. <laughs> you brought this notorious figure to life and you investigated him, someone who was connected to your own family. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, can you tell us a little bit about doing that? Because it was very hard to even hold a trial against the ghost of Sukkurs in modern day Latvia. Right. Yeah. Why is it so hard? Yeah. So, I mean, I after I discovered the story of Sukkurs' death, um, I also discovered that he was the subject, is the subject of an ongoing criminal investigation, um, which is akin to a kind of pre-trial investigation in other parts of the world, in which the prosecutor general of Latvia was investigating whether it could be proven that he had been complicit in the killings of Jews during the Holocaust. And to me, it was a kind of bewildering question, right? Because if this man had been dead since 1965, indeed, how could you investigate a corpse? Um, and according to the criminal code, because it was a capital crime, right, a murder, you, the prosecutor had no choice but to investigate. And it was this very strange case. And the prosecutor himself, when I spoke to him, admitted it, you know, it wasn't clear how it began. It, there wasn't a real um, named defendant. Um, and it wasn't clear how it could be resolved or indeed, as you said, whether a dead man could face trial, right? The law itself is not, you know, uh, totally unambiguous on that count. And so the prosecutor was essentially tasked with redoing the work of generations of historians to understand what happened in Riga during the Holocaust and but the logic he was using was very narrow. It was to understand if Zuckers ever pulled the trigger himself. Um, you know, it wasn't enough to him, all of the reams of testimony that we have and the interrogation records that say, yes, he was at Rumbula Forest, which was the site of one of the worst massacres in Riga in 1941. Um, or, you know, yes, he did drive his boss to the killing fields. You know, there, there was a standard of proof that seemed to exceed what we... Uh, would think of as enough to prove a historical truth. Do you think this had a lot to do with World War II itself, which is so contentious in former Soviet countries, it include, especially in Russia, where Russia's role in working with the Nazis or not working as they, as they to this day say they did not. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how this was connected and weaved into the criminal investigation? Yes, absolutely. And I do think, you know, as one of my um, colleagues 
in Riga pointed out to me, uh, the investigative journalist Sanita Yemberka, who runs ReBaltica, um, she said to me, you know, over coffee in Leopaya that, you know, you have to understand here, it is like World War II happened yesterday. You know, that these questions of complicity um, and guilt and vengeance and responsibility uh, for what occurred remain extremely active and inform, you know, kind of daily politics. Uh, and, you know, I think that means something different in the Baltic states than it might, you know, in America. There, it is very much about holding the Soviets to account for the deportation of a huge percentage of the Latvian population, um, from which, you know, the population never fully recovered. Um, and those deportations happened before the German occupation and afterwards. Um, so not only was the entire Jewish population of Latvia completely wiped out by the Holocaust, but they also suffered losses um, previously and after the fact, you know. Um, it was mostly Latvian kind of bourgeois families who were rounded up by the Soviets, but of course there were a few Jewish families among them. Um, and I do think, you know, this investigation so captivated me because for many reasons, but also because it seemed to uh, seem to be attempting to litigate the question of guilt and culpability writ large through the figure of this man, Herbert Zuckers, um, in order to reclaim him as a national hero. And you detailed attempts by the tiny Jewish Latvian community to have places such as one of the synagogues, you know, to have it marked now for people to have a place um, to remember it and to visit and how difficult those efforts were compared to having placards placed which honoured Latvians who fought against the Soviets. I was surprised and disheartened by how expansive um, those efforts were by the, by the current Latvian government. I mean, was that ever a, did that ever hinder you in your in your investigation? Um, these well, I do think you know we're at an interesting moment. I think as I was writing the book, things were worse than they are now, which has kind of been a heartening turn. Um, and but it is true that you know the deportations of Latvians, this kind of those were memorialized prior to the erection of some Holocaust memorials. Um, and, you know, as listeners might be familiar with, there is this, um, you know, language of kind of double genocide, right? That first there was the, um, you know, some Latvians interpret the deportations as a genocide that would rival the Holocaust. And there's this kind of competing war of memories um, about who is remembered and how. I do think the memorial landscape has shifted and that it is becoming, you know, a much more welcoming environment to Jewish memorials. And I think even like more promisingly locally sourced Jewish memorials and monuments. Um, but as I discovered while writing the book, you know, because so many Latvians did join the cause of the Germans thinking they were fighting for their own independence. Um, although, of course, there were partisan units who joined neither side. Um, that kind of, they are heroized for their service to the kind of Axis powers. By approaching that, by approaching memory politics, you delved into the idea of justice as memory. Right. And I, 
I found this fascinating and, and something we don't see enough of in a way. I mean, we often think of justice as prison time or an apology. For many in Ukraine today, it's seeing the Russian government and its propagandists in The Hague being convicted as war criminals. But um, but you make a very compelling case for justice as memory. I know that a lot of, yeah, yeah this was done because that, that's all that's left of a lot of the people who were harmed by the Holocaust or victims to it are dead and indeed their perpetrators. But justice's memory, how powerful uh, a tool is that compared to traditional justice that we see meted out? Yeah, it's a fascinating question. And the inspiration for it comes from, um, you know, the concluding line of um, Yosef Hayim Yerushalmi's study of Jewish memory. Uh, in which he poses, you know, he's quoting a survey from Le Monde about the trial of Klaus Barbie, which, and he asks, you know, maybe the antonym of forgetting isn't memory, maybe it is justice. And so he's weighing these two terms and kind of considering the different forms of reckoning that they present. And one of the things I learned while writing the book and trying to really understand how law operates in this context is just what it cannot do, right? And all of the ways that it cannot fulfill the demands um, of reckoning, of justice, you know, like the fact that you don't need to prove a thousand murders took place if you can prove a hundred, right? Which is a famous line about um, the post-war trials, right? And so you have these 900 murders that all of a sudden are no longer legal fact and they can fall away. Um, and suddenly become subject to questioning. Um, and so it was kind of an epistemological question, you know, what what kinds of proof, what kinds of storytelling do we need to respond to a climate that still insists on, you know, forensic truth, right? To be able to say who pulled the trigger and where were they standing and did they get out of the car with these, you know, forms of understanding and knowledge that we have built up over many decades. You know, I wanted to explicitly push back against revisionist and denialist readings of um, both of the, you know, the German and the Soviet occupations of Riga and to try to actually look at square, look at it squarely in the face. Did it reaffirm your belief in legal systems or, or would you say it did the opposite? You know, I don't know. I think I, I came away from it um, kind of in awe of these generations of people who had dedicated their whole lives, you know, in the hope, often failed hope of making trials happen and of collecting testimonies. Um, you know, some of the people I talked to from the book had escaped from Riga uh, or from Latvia during the war and dedicated their lives to looking for other survivors and documenting what they had seen. And many of those testimonies, you know, they're incredible for the historical record, but they were not sufficient to stand up in court. And I think we're at this moment now when we're kind of dusting off these old um, concepts of international justice and wondering what will still work for us and thinking through what does it mean to collect testimony that can stand up, you know? And um, I'm hopeful that, you know, the Ukrainians currently are conducting their own domestic prosecutions, you know, that is one form of justice. And in these discussions of what form of, you know, tribunal or court, who will ultimately hear 
the case for what is happening in Ukraine right now. I think this is an opportunity to kind of reimagine what justice might look like today. So you've been also reporting in Ukraine recently, is that right? Yeah, I was just there in September, so not too long ago. Because memory politics seem to have come to the fore on the battlefield in the current conflict. Oh, absolutely. And I think it always has been at play, right? Not only about the historical relationship between Ukraine and Russia, and but also, you know, explicitly in the way that Putin framed this this phase of the invasion as a campaign of denazification, right? He's invoking all of these um, myths of Ukrainian complicity with the Germans and completely occluding um, any complexity, right? And kind of framing Ukraine as a Nazi nation um, to justify this war. And you have these accounts of soldiers, Russian soldiers who end up in Ukraine looking for the Nazis and the fascists and um, the Ukrainians who confront them say, you know, look around, they're not here. You know, look at what you are doing here, in fact. And so I think for me, this became extremely um, apparent in the very first week of the invasion at the end of February when the site of Babinyar was bombed by a Russian missile that was aiming for, you know, the Kiev TV tower um, that you know, in addition to killing civilians, that bomb also destroyed a building that was supposed to be a museum to the Holocaust in Eastern Europe. Um, And so it's kind of this irony of ironies, right? Um, They're destroying the very history which they hope to exploit, you know, thus making it all the more vulnerable for their own use. So yeah, I think this is very much a war that's being kind of framed in terms of, you know, World War II memory battles. That sort of brings me to my next question, which is about the subtitle of your book. (laughs) Yeah, so it's How the Holocaust Ends. And you write in your book that this is not a prediction or a prescription, but it's a warning. Could you elaborate on that a bit more? Yeah, I mean, I thought about the subtitle a lot, and I still feel kind of conflicted about it. I think what I was trying to convey is that we are at an ending of a kind in that we are very much in this much anticipated moment when the Holocaust is going to pass from memory into history, when the people who witnessed it themselves, who survived it, are increasingly no longer with us, are not able um, to stand up and tell us their stories anymore. And that is an important moment to be aware of. I think I was thinking about how much, how difficult it is to prove things right now. And I guess I want to point out that it's not an accident that at the very moment when we are losing Um, the last living witnesses that all of a sudden you see this almost frenzied desire for forensic truth when it comes to the Holocaust, you know, to know who pulled the trigger, to know who betrayed Anne Frank as a recent cold case investigation tried to find out, you know. So I was thinking about that, you know, how do we push back against this? How do we make sure this is not indeed how the story of the Holocaust ends in revisionism and denialism? And you know, I came across the testimony of a Jewish survivor from Riga who, after the war, was asked to go to a West German prison to identify one of the perpetrators from the Riga ghetto. 
and he tells the story in this letter about how this Nazi Reese begged him for forgiveness and said, you know, I'm willing to confess from every, for, to everything from A to Z if you help me uh, get out with my life. And Berman says, okay, you know, and then only later does he reflect, you know, even if he started, he says, you know, even if he started confessing, how would I know when he got to Z? How would I know like when he gets to the end of all of his crimes? Um, and so that's what I was thinking about when you think about an ending, right? Um, it can be knowledge, it can be confession, it can be a trial, a trial we think of as the end of a story. We might think of, you know, taking down a monument as the end of a certain story as well. But of course it never really ends. It's not meant to be taken literally, but rather kind of provocatively. Mm. This frenzy for forensics that you described, which is chilling, where do you think this comes from? I think it's a combination of things. I think one of the things is that we have new technologies now that give us the illusion, I think, often, and the ability to look back to the past in a different way. And I think because people see technologies being applied to contemporary crimes, they think that they should also be applied to historical ones. Um, and so there's this desire to excavate the past in the very, very deliberate way. Um, whereas really, like, it's been settled, you know, it is not a question, right? The question of culpability writ large is not up for debate, right? And of course, history is always being revised and rewritten and reexamined, right? But there, it's not as if the ground will fall out from underneath us, you know, there are certain um, points of consensus. And so, you know, I also think that it is part and parcel of, um, you know, things that are this kind of nationalist turn. Um, and you've seen a similar logic mobilized in, say, Poland, right, where you've had historians on trial for suggesting that a local mayor was complicit in the killings of Jews. Um, and, you know, all of a sudden we have this forensic language to say, well, can you prove it? Can you prove that happened in 1943? You know, the standards of proof have shifted more recently and it's not the same as they were in the past. So I think that's partly what's going on. And I think another part is that people who are set on crafting revisionist and denialist narratives will do so no matter what. It's so depressing. <laughs> Um, you talk about excavating the past and this book was very much excavating your own past. Um, yeah. How did that feel on a personal level? What, what was going through you? Well, I think that to some extent, I, when I began, I was, you know, kind of quite naive about um, what the story would do to me and exactly what it entailed. And I, you know, set out thinking I could maintain kind of journalistic anonymity um, which evaporated, you know, about an hour into working on this, um, because I realized that, you know, the prosecutor, when I reached out for an interview, immediately recognized my last name and said, you know, your grandfather is the person whose name comes up in the case documents, you know, do you have any evidence yourself that you could submit? Um, and I said, no, we don't, we don't have anything. Um, so yeah, it was very difficult, but I also think because I am in the third generation, I am, you know, it's my grandfather, it's not my immediate parents, that I was able to approach it with some remove. And I think that's something that you increasingly see as a characteristic of, you know, so-called third generation 
Holocaust narratives, right, is that there's a certain affect of um, distance from the subject matter that that was that provided me with immense um, kind of relief, mm. I think. Um, but also I felt an obligation because of the personal, personal connection to the story and also because I was raised in the Jewish tradition, you know, where you are taught, you know, justice, justice, you shall pursue. I felt an obligation to write this book as my own contribution to the criminal investigation and say, you know, to follow the footsteps and say, no, this can be proven. It definitely did feel that way. It was a sort of crusade for justice, which was brilliant, especially when you look at the current political landscape in India, when, where it, when it comes to Tsukas today. Yeah. One of the narratives or the threads in the book, which, which kind of had me thinking and, and disturbed me and well, puzzled me, was Tsukas helped a young Jewish woman escape the Holocaust. You gave a, a bit of, of understanding of why he might do that, which is essentially to defend himself in future. Like, what do you mean I killed Jews? I helped this lady, you know. But um, c- can you elaborate on that idea um, as we're seeing it elsewhere, uh, in other wars, in other conflicts? Is that a well-known method of protection against prosecution? Yeah, I mean, he was certainly not the only... Um, Nazi to have tried that, um, you know, excuse. Uh, It's not totally unusual to hear about individual and isolated acts of kindness and generosity um, as if that could excuse the kind of greater web of culpability. Um, But I do, you know, I think it's difficult to say, you know, how it would apply to other conflicts. I think you see it, right? I mean, it could also be fall under the kind of category of whataboutism, which is absolutely everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I do see some of that um, being deployed in Ukraine currently, where Russians are saying, you know, how can you say that we're killing innocent Ukrainians? Like, on the contrary, we are inviting them to Russia and we will, you know, take them in here. And you hear these awful stories of Ukrainian children being adopted um, against, you know, their will, certainly against their parents' will. Um, And you can see how easily those stories would be reframed um, as triumphant ones. Um, And so that is kind of heartbreaking on so many levels. And, you know, the Jewish woman that Zucker saved was named Miriam Keitzners. And she went on, she followed the family to South America and settled down in Brazil and married a Jewish man and never spoke of what happened during the war to her children. And because she was really a witness to Zucker's life, was asked to testify um, by the Jewish community in um, Sao Paulo about what he did during the war. And she said she had no idea. Um, and her daughter, uh, Helga, who I spoke to um, a number of times for the book, was similarly asked to testify to her mother's experience. And she said, I don't know enough, you know. And so for me, it was fascinating to discover how these relations and really complex dynamics um, kind of carry on through the generations. Absolutely. I mean, it was just 
yeah, I, I would love to know what was going on in her mind and how she made peace with that. Feel free not to answer this actually, because it's personal, but um, <laughs> <laughs> but I something that I wanted to ask throughout reading the book was how your own mother and father were about the past. I mean, when they met in Riga, did, or was it just not discussed? Yeah, I mean, of course, as you can imagine, that's a question that I get a lot. Um, I think in to a large degree, it was not discussed um, what happened during the war. And there's um, a wonderful, wonderful historian named Fran Francesca Exler, who has done a paper um, that's called What Did You Do During the War? And it's these tales of, um, it's, you know, Belarusian towns where people came back and started asking questions about what people actually did. And she documents this culture of secrecy that I think you do see, um, you know, in many other places in the region. And so I do think that a lot was swept under the rug and people really didn't know. It wasn't like today when we have these stories of survivors, you know, the people who did survive often, they didn't talk about it, they weren't celebrated, they just gave their testimonies as was asked of them and tried to put their lives back together. Um, so I think that's also why you see this memory really playing a large role in the present and certainly over the last 20 years, because only then has it really felt like a, all the documents are available, but also B, we have a more open society in which these questions can be discussed. It's interesting how you describe the sweeping it under the rug. I, I feel there's parallels there with the 1950s, the thaw in the Soviet Union. Yeah. People just were like, oh, the 30s? Um, you know, they just never discussed what they were doing then because it, it opens up this horrible can of worms. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's interesting to think about the thaw as a parallel, right? Because that was also a period of time where people were being rehabilitated, you know, en masse for things that they had been suppressed for, um, which meant that their supposed crimes were literally wiped out. You know, it was as if the crime had never occurred at all. And you do see rehabilitation emerge um, after 1991, once again, right? So you do, it is similarly a period of reevaluation that can come with silence and it can come with kind of contestations. Linda Kinsler, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me and for the conversation. This has been The Lead by New Lines Magazine. You can find Linda on Twitter at Linda Kinsler and you can find her book, Come to This Court and Cry, in all good bookshops. This week's episode was produced by Joshua Martin and hosted by me, Amy Ferris-Rotman. For more like this, subscribe to The Lead on your favorite podcast app or visit our website, newlinesmag.com.